Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Peter Freeth. Peter, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, nice to nice to see you, Amy. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I have a thank you to Adrian Hales for the introductions. No, it's uh, no, it's great. I know I've known Adrian for a few years, so uh, nice to be nice to be recommended. Absolutely. So let's see where should we start today. I think we'll start with the question I ask most people to start with which is what is it that you're up to at the moment Peter? Well uh, having moved house four days ago still climbing over boxes moving things to so in a period of of um, change in many ways really uh, obviously we've uh, at the time that we're recording this we've been in and out of lockdown in the UK for a year, almost exactly a year. And um, and I think one of the things that's happened for just about every business um, is the pandemic, the lockdowns, the uncertainty, the opening and closing and so on, um, has, has accelerated change, I think, in just about every business. And, uh, and that certainly happened with mine as well. So my business was uh, corporate learning and development, executive coaching, um and my i started a publishing business about a pro- properly about 12 years ago although i've been publishing for well, over 20 years and uh, and obviously writing much longer than that and i'd always had this in the back of my mind that the publishing business would be my kind of long term plan i suppose a retirement plan i don't like to say that out loud because it makes me sound old but uh, kind of a retirement plan. And um, one of the things that's changed with the pandemic, obviously, is people aren't going out and, you know, visiting other companies and and people have had much more pressing things to think about than leadership development or or, or even executive coaching. So I'm still doing a lot of that, but but online. Um, And so the classroom stuff has gone completely. So I mentioned about moving house and we'd been looking for, a house that had a big enough room to have a training room in it, which is what we had in the old house. And then we realized we're just not going to run courses at home again. And, you know, a lot of my old ex-students who might even be listening to this um, have actually said that they're really sad about that because they loved coming to the house and, and the whole sort of atmosphere and the whole community that built up around that was wonderful. But, you know, the world's changed. And, you know, so... So we, we we stopped that. We didn't bother looking for a house that had space to train anymore. And that, that gave us a lot more options. But what it meant is that, you know, almost everything's online now. Um, so far more important to me now is getting a bigger office set up with more sort of dedicated space and furniture and so on for online learning. And then the second thing is the publishing side of the business, where I thought that might be something I'll be doing in its entirety maybe i don't know maybe 10 years from now actually um the publishing is now the major part of my business so 
So what we've experienced over the last year has definitely accelerated not only the change in, in how I deliver the sort of programs that I run, but also change in, in, in the nature of the business. But you know, what they all have in common is they're all about sharing knowledge, uh, creating and sharing knowledge. And one of the things I found, I started the publishing business properly in 2009, when you'll remember we were in the middle of another recession. And what I realized back then was when people don't have the money to go on training courses, they buy books instead. And, and nowadays, of course, they also tune into podcasts and watch YouTube videos and so on. So people still have that need for knowledge and that need to, to learn and to develop themselves, regardless of what the environment's doing. And people will find a way to do that. So, uh, you know, that's definitely influenced what I'm, what I'm doing right now. Long answer to your, to your simple question. So new beginnings. This hasn't been the first time, though, that you've sort of started from scratch. I think about three times I've started from scratch. I've started my own business um, for various reasons, some economic, some personal, mostly personal, actually. I think looking back, you know, things like uh, recessions and pandemics and so on, they've never really gotten in the way. What they've done is caused me to change direction um, and to rethink what I do and, and figure out different things of doing. But actually the stuff that's been most disruptive has been has been personal stuff. And so, yeah, restarting from scratch, starting or restarting, I think three times, maybe four times, something like that. And you say change direction. What was the sort of instigation or, or how did you approach that? Because it's not always an easy ability to do that and I know a lot of people I mean I'm I'm a midlife beginner I, I'm very proud of being a midlife beginner and I and I embrace those beginnings but there's a sometimes it's a pretty steep learning curve yes it seems like it I think it's a steep learning curve when you're looking when you're looking into it but I think um, my personal feeling is that people use the lack of knowledge and that steep learning curve as an excuse um and actually all the big things you do in life you just do them because you want to do them and then you figure it out as you go along and that was very much what i did i mean i started my business in 2002 i think i'd probably known for getting on for 10 years that, that having my own business or being self-employed was inevitable i just didn't know what i was going to do um i just became increasingly tired of working in corporate environments. And the last company that I that I worked for, which was in the telecoms industry, uh, kind of did me a favor. It was the most horrible, toxic culture that I've ever seen anywhere. Um, but that kind of did me a favor because it was so awful. It just kind of encouraged me to... Uh, to, to prepare and, uh, you know, to do my own thing. And then I got a voluntary redundancy package, which was very helpful. But the lack of knowledge, I think, was, I think we underestimate how much we know and how much we acquire and how transferable um, you know, everything that we, that we do is. Um, I, think, I think the, you know, particularly the education system, the recruitment industry, they're all trying to focus us into more narrow pathways 
you know, you've got this qualification, so you've got to do this job. My, my oldest daughter had started university a couple of years back. And um, what we found going to the universities and going to, um, uh, you know, open days was that there are courses that are so narrow now and so focused and so vocational because the pressure is on kids to leave university and immediately get a job to pay off their student loan. Um, that there are jobs, the courses that were funneling students into specific jobs. And there were even courses at some universities that was funneling students into specific employers. And, you know, so from the age of, you know, mid-teens, those kids have got to decide what they're going to be doing for the rest of their lives, which is ridiculous. You know, when I was 18, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew that I wanted to have fun, but I didn't know what that would look like in terms of making a living. So I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure on people to, to decide to stay on one track. And like you say about that steep learning curve, I think the problem is there's, there's always more that you don't know than, than you do know. You know. There's more that you don't know about podcasting, even after you've been doing it for as long as you have. There's more that we don't know about, you know, all of these different things. Um, and to, to, to think, oh, I, I can't do it because I don't know enough about it. Well, nobody, know, nobody knew about podcasting five years ago. You know, and the pandemic and the lockdowns and all that have accelerated that and, you know, you're doing more podcasts now and people coming to you for help with the podcast that they're starting up because, you know, what else are people going to do? Uh, you know, they've got to do something. So so people will find a way. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter how steep the learning curve is. If that's your only option, if your only way forward is up, you will find a way up. And it's interesting you say, Peter, that you knew that it was going to be inevitable that you were going to be an entrepreneur in one way or another, but you just didn't know what you were going to do. How did you sort of take, I mean, you, you got the voluntary redundancy, but how did you then filter out what you wanted to do versus what you didn't want to do? And how did you decide that publishing and teaching and, and training were going to be what you went into? I think um, I'd always been interested in, I don't know, to put it broadly, knowledge, the idea of creating knowledge, sharing knowledge. Now, I can remember specific times through my life where there was a strong connection with that. I think when I was very young, you know, very young child, one of the first things I loved to do was read. And I think I think people under a certain age probably wouldn't understand or, or appreciate this. But when I was a kid, there were only three TV channels. And during the daytime, there was no daytime TV. There were no talk shows. There was no, you know, kids TV programs. There was nothing like that at all. So what was on the TV in the daytime? Well, the channels would either close down, they'd not broadcast at all. Um, I think on BBC Two, it was back-to-back -back school programs and open university programs. So if you did a distance learning course through the OU, you would get a load of books and paper in the post and you would watch tv programs and they were all lectures on science geography history all kinds of stuff so well my mom uh, and you know and a housewife back in those days had a full-time job you know every day full-time was was cleaning washing because there were no you know there wasn't a dishwasher 
there was a there was a washing machine, but you know there was no tumble dryer. There was a clothesline outside. Everything took longer because everything was a manual task. So she would be occupied all day, and she'd park me in front of the TV, and I would watch open university programs at the age of like four onwards, I guess. Um, so I always enjoyed that. And and if I was off off school or you know sick, I'd, I'd love to read. I remember I had a a Star Wars book. Uh, and I think I must have read it like four times in one day when I was off school with a cold. Because, you know, I think a lot of people, have, like I say, of a certain age would say, you know, in our day, there was nothing else to do. You know, you'd go and play out, you'd, you'd play outside. And if it was raining, you'd sit inside and read or you'd make stuff or, you know, you'd find something to occupy your time. So I think there was that sort of early on. Um, and then when it came to the time early 2000s where I thought, you know, I've, I've, I've got to make this happen. And, you know, the, and the possibility of voluntary redundancy was there. Um, I learned about uh, something called NLP, which I guess you, I know you know about, and I guess some of your other guests have talked about and people are listening to this podcast. They've probably come across, but neuro-linguistic programming, which is a system for understanding how different people see the world differently and therefore how they create interpersonal and intrapersonal conflict by that mismatch of the subjective experience of reality. And you've all been to a meeting or an event or had a conversation with somebody where two people come away with very different ideas of, of what happened and, and why and, and even what was agreed. So we know that, but it's a system for, uh, for, for, for specifically identifying what those differences are and then making changes in, in that subjective perception so that we can operate in the world more efficiently. And I came across that back in the mid 90s. Uh, again, when I worked in the telecoms industry, the, the company I worked for had an internal training school, I used to run a three day NLP course. And it was a cult course. Everybody in the company was trying to get on this course. So huge waiting list. So I got on it and I loved it because, because it answered a lot of questions that I'd had for a long time about life and relationships. And I guess the fundamental question that I think I suspect everybody asks themselves at some point. And I suspect the people that say, well, I don't know, I would never ask myself that question. They're probably lying. Um, and the question is, what is wrong with me? And I think we go through life experiencing misfortune, failure, rejection. And, and, and of course, you know, it's very, uh, what most people do is blame the outside. Well, it's your fault. You did this. You said this. You made me feel like this. But I think underneath that, there's a there's a level of fear for everybody, which is maybe that happened because there was something wrong with me. Maybe I went to that job interview and didn't get the job because I wasn't good enough. Maybe that relationship broke down because of something I I, I wasn't enough in some way. And I think everybody experiences that in in some way. And so I'd been kind of looking for the answer for that in psychology books and not finding any answers. I've been finding lots of names for things that were wrong with me but I didn't find any advice on what to do with it. Um, and I found that a lot of that in the NLP course that I did, that's that short course, it just gave me loads of really, really simple stuff to do that was about starting to understand how different people think differently and different people see the world differently. And it was just really simple stuff that I could put into practice right away. Um, and 
the the last company I worked for, when I joined there, I found out they actually had a corporate NLP practice group. So I went along to that. The guy that ran that in London was was leaving. He was taking voluntary redundancy as well to start his own hypnotherapy practice. So he was leaving. So I took over the group and I ran the group. And I grew that and we were running events across the country, more than monthly, getting up to 100 people coming along to each other. It was really the heyday of NLP, you know, when there were lots of practice groups across the, com- the country. They were all big, popular. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a great time, really. And so when the opportunity came up to take voluntary redundancy, I thought, well, what am I going to do uh, with, with myself? And I thought, well, I'll just do what I enjoy. And I thought, well, at the moment, I'm enjoying doing this. So I'll just carry on doing this. And what I actually said to myself was, I will do this for as long as I enjoy it. And when I stop enjoying it, I'll do something else. I don't know what that will be, but, um, you know, I'll find out when I get there. And, you know, I'm still here, still enjoying it, uh, almost 20 years later. Um, And I'm enjoying it because it changes so much, I think. You know, because it's never been one thing, because I've always rejected or, or pushed back on that pressure to be one thing and often you know people just want to know just tell me one thing that you do what's your job title you're a plumber right i get that i understand what a plumber is oh well i'm not really a plumber i'm more of a uh, not interested i want you to be a plumber because that's what i understand i want you to be an electrician i want you to be a lorry driver because i get that i understand that job but you know a digital resource facility i don't i don't know i don't know what that is i don't want to find out you know people and if you think about all the labels that we have, you know, father, mother, brother, sister, wife, uh, friend, and job titles, or every every label that we have is relational. It's all about the relationship that it defines. It's not about what I do. So calling me, you know, so uh, yesterday I was fixing a leaking pipe in, uh, from the shower. Am I a plumber? Because I was fixing a, a, a leak in a pipe. Well, for the space of 10 minutes, I was a plumber, but it doesn't define who I am. Um, and if people talked about what they really are, there's so, so much. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk recent, in recent years about, you know, employers putting people in two small boxes with, with job description, you know, very specific job descriptions and, and not allowing people or not creating the space for people to bring them wholesale, their whole selves to work. And at the same time, employers saying and, and, you know, employment industry bodies and professional associations saying, oh, we want to create an environment where people bring their whole selves to work. Well, OK, well, um, so if there's a leaking pipe in the bathroom. Do you want me to fix that? Oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, health and safety. Well, uh, you want me to bring my whole self to work. You don't really. What you really want me to do is bring more of the bits that you want me to bring so you can get more more value for what you pay me. That's what you really want. You don't really want me to bring my whole self to work. You don't want me to start, you know, knitting or embroidery or something, you, you know, because I enjoy that and it makes me feel good. So do that in your own time. So, <laughs> so I think I think I've always pushed back on that, that, I don't know, very uh what's the word, restrictive or uh reductive way of labeling and defining people. Because when I'm, you know, when we're by ourselves, we don't call ourselves anything. We just, me, I. So all these labels that we have, they're for other people's benefit, not ours. So sure, if you want to call me a plumber, call me a plumber. And I went through, I suppose you could call it a midlife crisis, where I had all these 
names for myself and what I did. And none of them really meant anything to me. And I remember one day getting a huge sheet of paper, writing them all out. And, and, and really kind of making a map of all these labels and all these, because I was trying to define myself. And I suppose I was thinking something like, what do I put on my business card? Or what do I put on my website profile or something like that? And as I looked at this big sheet of paper with all these labels on, that was when I realized these labels are all for other people's benefit, not for mine. And that was the moment when I realized, you know, I don't care. Other people can call me whatever they want. I'm just me. Uh, and I'll do what I want. Uh, you know, in terms of stuff that, that, you know, that is valuable in some way. And other people can, you know, if other people want to call me a coach, yeah, I'm a coach. Other people want to call me a trainer, yeah, okay. Other people want to call me a publisher, yeah, fine. That's what I am to them, then that's what I am in in their world as as I as I sit within their world, not mine. You raise some really interesting points here, and I could go on so many different avenues right now, Peter. And the, the what is wrong with me question is, is one of those avenues. The not good enough is another avenue. The, the labelling need that we have from a societal point is another avenue. So there's, there's so many different areas. I think what we'll go with is that go with the first one. Well, what is wrong with me? Now, that question, uh, I you said it's a question that a lot of people ask at some point in their life. And if they don't, then are they really being honest about whether they, they have asked that question or not? You said you looked in psychology books and you didn't find the answers. The NLP provided some of the answers immediately for you or, or just sort of helped to alleviate the pressure of you asking that question. Do you still ask that question now? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Yes, I think so. I think so. Because I think if you don't, it's like it's like if you're driving your car one day and your car just kind of the engine stops and it just stalls, you know, and you you can't get the engine started. So you think, right, well, you know, I'm a smart person. I never run out of petrol because you know I'm I would never do it because that's stupid. So I would never do that. So you call out, you know, the breakdown service. And they're checking the engine and the engine management system and the battery and, you know, the tires and, you know, they've dismantled the, you know, the car's been there for a week and various mechanics have come and say, you haven't run out. No, 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 no. I would never run out because that would be stupid. But actually all that's happened is you've run out of petrol. Yeah. Probably because you are stupid because we all are, you know, we all push doors that are clearly marked pull. We all, um, you know, put the, sugar in the wrong cup we all you know we all do things we, we all ask somebody the time and then ask them again two seconds later because we've already forgotten what they said we all do that we all we're all stupid and an autopilot a lot of the time we all make mistakes and i think the the, the, the point of the metaphor is that if we go around thinking well i'm perfect then logically if something's going wrong in my life it must be somebody else's fault who put this chair in the way? Who put this thing here? And who, did, who didn't turn this off? Or who didn't turn this on? Or whatever. It's all somebody else's fault. When the obvious answer is, well, it's your fault. Um, because you know, if you looked everywhere else, for example, you know, people talking relationships, jobs, 
you know, people go through a cycle of changing jobs, go through a cycle of relationships uh, and are never happy. Well, you know, you can't overlook the obvious, which is it's probably you. <laughs> like the whole thing when somebody says, you know, in a relationship, you know, it's not you, it's me. No, no, it actually is you. And if, and I think that that arrogance and that unwillingness to look at look, look at yourself in that way is not a malicious thing. It's born out of fear, and it's born out of a really fundamental fear, which is I've got this sneaking suspicion that I know what's wrong with me. But if I inquire into that too much, I will find out something that's much much worse than that. I will discover that, that it's true. And I don't even want to go there. And so I will not entertain even thinking about, let alone talking about, let alone having a conversation about what's wrong with me. It's also much more convenient that it's other people's fault. Um, you know, and people talk about in relationships, things like soulmates. You know, I think actually most people can get along with most people when you take away the friction caused by those fears interacting with it with each other you know and it doesn't matter how you do that whether it's through going on a retreat or counseling or or you know having a good friend to talk to or whatever but if you can explore those fears and those failings without without judging yourself and without being judged and without feeling the need to judge it's a hugely powerful but do I still ask myself what's wrong with me? Yes, but I think in a different way. I think uh, I, I'm pretty. I know much better what's wrong with me from a from a sort of relational perspective. And when that does kind of get in the way and cause a bit of friction, I, I you know, I know much quicker, you know, much faster why why I'm reacting in a certain way or why I'm, you know, winding myself, getting myself annoyed. And, you know, talking to myself and, and winding myself up. I know why I'm doing that and what triggers that much, much easier. Um, so I think I ask it in a different way now. I think I ask it in the same way that I would ask what's wrong with the washing machine? Um, what's wrong with, you know, my computer yesterday, the sound wouldn't work when I plugged the computer back in after, after moving house. So thinking, well, what's wrong with it? And then thinking, okay, how do I eliminate where the problem is and how do I pin it down and how do I fix it? That's much more of an analytical way of thinking about it. I think I'm much more able to apply that to myself now. So bear in mind that we have been experiencing these cyclical questions for millennia. How is it that we are still asking these same questions? I think because there's a fundamental design flaw in human beings that we have extremely complex sensory systems that create this very rich uh, representation of the outside world. We can, you know, we can detect electromagnetic vibrations in the, in the, in the, uh, in the universe, uh, which we call light. And we can detect very, very subtle changes in air pressure that we call sound, and we can detect changes in the the excitement of the, the the atoms in the air around us that we call temperature. You know, we can detect all of these amazing, amazing things. We can detect chemical molecules floating around in the air, and we call that smell. And um, and the problem is, all of those sensors are pointing outwards. The only person in the world who will never see you is you. And yeah, 
you know, we're talking on Zoom right now. I can see myself in the little window. It's very nice. Uh, but that isn't me. That's a distorted picture, um, you know, the distorted little video thing of, of, it's not me. If I'm looking at that thinking that's what I look like, it isn't. Because I'm not only seeing that through the distortion of the lens on the camera, I'm also seeing it through a distortion of a lifetime of looking at myself and looking in the mirror and thinking, yeah, I look all right. And then seeing myself in another mirror and thinking, oh, Jesus, I need to lose a few pounds. We, we see ourselves through through a filter of our own perceptual distortion. Add that to the fact that our senses only point outwards. We are mostly totally unaware of the impact that we have on the world. You know, and we could talk about that in a relational sense, the impact that we have on other people. We could talk about it in an environmental sense. You know, you'd, you'd drop a crest packet or you'd throw a water bottle, you know, or whatever. And, you know, people say, ooh, plastic's terrible. Well, somebody put it there. It didn't get there by itself. You know, people will go down the street, oh, look at the litter, it's terrible. People are, what people is you? That's everybody. Everybody's dropped stuff at some point. Everybody's opened the car door and let a tissue blow away and not, not run after it. And, you know, everybody's contributed to it. So we look out into the world and see a world that isn't the way we like it to be and say, whose fault is that? And the answer is, well, it's yours. Because um, you either caused it or you didn't solve it when you could have done. And, um, you know, you didn't, didn't, do your and people would say, well, I can't solve global warming by myself. Well, that's true. But then, you know, if everybody says that, then we don't solve it. So I think I think it, that's the design flaw is that we don't have a, any kind of self-facing cameras. And so we can only judge um, our behavior after a time delay. So you say something to somebody and you see them pull a face and you think, oh, they didn't agree with that or they didn't like what I just said or, you know, I, I offended them in some way. Uh, you know, in the space of a second or two, you've got some feedback. Well, then what do you do with that? Do you ignore it? Because you don't want to know that you've offended somebody. So you just say, oh, they're a bit sensitive. Oh, it's touchy today. What's wrong with them? Rather than thinking, oh, what did I just do that? You know, how did I misread that situation or whatever? Uh, or longer term, you know, you, you, you buy a pot plant, you don't water it, it dies. You know, it might take weeks before you get that feedback. The, the the point is, if you don't do anything with the feedback, then nothing's going to change. So people talk, and I'm sure you've had lots of guests talk about, oh, if you carry on doing the same thing, you've got to expect the same results. Yes, but why? Why? It's because the feedback is giving you information to improve your decision making. If you don't use it, you'll carry on making the same decisions based on out-of-date information. You know, if your sat-nav, when you're trying to get somewhere, isn't updating your location, then the directions will be meaningless. That's obvious. We know that. But there's so much feedback available to us constantly. And we ignore most of it because, because we're not seeing ourselves in the relationship with the world. We're only seeing the world and what it's doing to us. Um, and the world isn't going to change unless we do something differently. And you talked about the toxic culture of your previous employers of the telecommunications business that you were in. And yet, actually, you, you also said it did you a favour. But if they hadn't have held that course, you wouldn't have been on this different direction in life 
and you wouldn't have been exposed to all of the the, the new ways of seeing these perceptions, seeing these different filters and, and being aware of, of what else is available. So it's, it's funny, isn't it, that in the most toxic environment, you also found a, a great future. Well, well, there were different companies. Um, so the, the company that, that ran the course was a fantastic company, exciting place to work, fun, great people, sociable. Um, it was tremendous, so supportive, wonderful. And like a lot of startup companies, it, it grows fast and it collapses. And the writing was on the wall. And I thought, you know, this company isn't going to be here in a year's time. And so I started looking to move and I moved to another company, a Canadian manufacturer that was again, you know, possibly, possibly even better in, in terms of, the, you know, it was a company I'd wanted to work for for a long time fantastic place to work loads of opportunities exciting um you know a lot of great people working there and again startup grew was a international market leader in a couple of different technology areas loads of international travel tremendously exciting time and again you know the bubble burst and that collapsed um and i'd left both of those companies about a year before they disappeared all altogether because you know you start to see signs like they start to put paper signs in the in the room with a photocopier saying, you know, about saving paper by copying on both sides. Um, they start, you know, the coffee machine was free, and then it then they start charging for it. Things like that. So you think, yeah, I can see where this is going. Um, and that was very sad because they were tremendous environments. And I think, you know, it's something, you know, these things don't last, and you've got to make the most of them. But you've also, I think, it's very important not to hang on to them. Um, and I suppose that philosophy started with my first job. So I left school in 1985, started work as an apprentice uh, in a, a kind of a telecoms related company and great job, loved it. And, and, and something scared me uh, about it, which was I loved the job so much that I imagined one day waking up on my retirement day and still doing the same job and still driving the, driving the same estate car and still going around fixing fire alarms and telephone systems and so on and thinking where did my life go and and the reason I thought that was because I went to a lot of people's retirement parties and there were engineers who'd done that job for 45 years same job 45 years working in the same little district the same little local area same customers same routine every day driving the same kind of car and they loved it. They loved that familiarity and that security. And it was a wonderful, wonderful job. And they, and they talked about the workforce as a family. And it really was that, you know, it was wonderful. But I saw these people who were retiring and dying within two weeks of their retirement date. And I'm not exaggerating. Either side, you know, as soon as that retirement date is, is in sight, it was like these people didn't have any other reason for live to live other than their routine they didn't know what to do with themselves there was one guy i worked with who was fantastic uh, <laughs> great fun a lo lovely guy to be around and he was impatient for his retirement to come up and he'd already he got a uh, i think he'd bought a camper van and uh, he was into he was building uh, one of these sort of electronic uh, organs that you used to see at the end of the pier uh, and he was into sort of music and and he had all these things lined up for his retirement 
and and in the late latter years, later years of his work, work became an inconvenience that was stopping him from retiring. And when he retired, he he had a long, you know, a happy. He got into ill health sadly, and and didn't enjoy it as much as he could have done. Which is, you know, don't wait for your retirement to start living, really. But I saw a lot of people who did, and I was that scared me, because I thought I'm enjoying this so much, I'll not notice time passing by, and I've got to get out and I've got to move on. And I pushed myself to move out and and change jobs, and mostly that worked out really well. Um, and then, as you as you're alluding to there, the last company I worked for, where I was only there for three years, with a very toxic environment, and and given what I've said about you know the problem is me, yes, I'm, I. As I said earlier, for a long time, I realized I, I really couldn't cope in the corporate in the corporate environment. And at the time, I would have said, I can't stand working for idiots who ask you to do things. And they don't even know why they're asking you to do them. And then, then you produce something that nobody ever looks at. Why am I doing this again? Well, because you've got to, because everybody's doing it. Well, what kind of a reason is that? So... I really, you know, I realized that the problem wasn't that I was being managed by idiots. The problem was me that, you know, I just didn't fit in in that environment because other people were very happy there. One thing that interested me about that company when I joined was all the people I started meeting in the course of my job had the most amazing hobbies and had things. You know, there was one guy used to restore and show off these old steam traction engines that you'll see at sort of country fairs. Uh, and, and and rally driving. So people have the most amazing hobbies. And I figured it was because the job was so soul-destroying. They had to have something outside of work that was more than just stamp collecting and, you know, uh, and, you know, reading and stuff that people put on their, on their CVs. So, um, I think it, it was a, a toxic environment because the pe- a lot of people there were just waiting. There were people uh, that I knew there who were just waiting until they could take early retirement. And one of the things the company was doing to save money was it kept moving the early retirement date back. And there was a couple of guys I remember down in London who they used to always go around as a pair. Uh, they were inseparable. I don't think they ever did any work. All they did was wait. And they'd get within sight of their early retirement, the company would move it back another couple of years. And just waiting, that's that's the thing that's soul-destroying. You know, it's doing something that has no value because you hope that if you do it for long enough, you'll then get something that is of value. But by the time that you get there, it's you know, to that point, it's too late to do anything about it. So I think those are the, the things that I learned, you know, right at the very, very start of my career. Uh, and and then you're right, you know, that certainly the voluntary redundancy I thought was a great asset to me because I thought I needed the cushion of having some money in the bank in order to make the jump, the leap to being self-employed. And people talk about it in those terms, like there's some big chasm that they've got across because they're not going to have that monthly uh, regular salary. But what they don't realize is the salary isn't the isn't the barrier. The money isn't the barrier. Time is the barrier. And when you're working a nine to five job or or whatever hours you're working, that is time that you're not investing in yourself and your own business, if that's something that you're interested in doing, or re-educating yourself in order to change direction. You know, that it's the time because the money, you can there's lots of different ways you can get more money, but you can't get more time. And 
what I realized was the money was never a barrier because I took my voluntary redundancy money and I thought, right, this will last me about six months. So if I can't start making a living in six months, then it isn't going to work and I'll go back and find another job in the telecoms industry. I actually bought a car that consumed most of the money and what was left still lasted a year because I started earning money self-employed before I'd even left my old job. Um, and I think that's the, where the fear comes from, is I need a cushion of money to get me across this chasm because I'm not going to start getting paid straight away. Well, that's got nothing to do with the availability of money. That's to do with your belief that, the, that people are going to want to pay you. And if when I was in a job where for three years people were told, telling me that I was worthless and you know nothing I did had any value, when I got to the end, you know, at that time thinking I've got to get out of this, I'd, you know, I'd started to believe that that was true. And so the obvious question was, well, who's going to pay me? It's going to take me a long time before somebody pays me. And that actually wasn't the case at all. So I think, I think often the pressure that drives people to become self-employed, paradoxically, is the same pressure that causes them to devalue themselves and then doubt that they can do it. So it actually ends up being like an abusive relationship. You're in a relationship with somebody who tells you that, you know, I'm the best you'll ever get and you'll never find anybody as good as me and you, you know, and managers in this company actually, and I'm not exaggerating, actually used to say to people, you'll never get a job anywhere else as good as this. Yeah, you might earn a bit of money if you go here and there, but, you know, you, then you'll have to really work for a living. Then you'll have to do that. You won't know what pressure is to. That's the language of an abusive relationship. And it was because, and it wasn't because those managers, I think, genuinely thought that. I think it's because they were afraid as well. Everybody there was afraid of, I, I don't like this, but I'm afraid that if I go somewhere else, things, it'll be worse. And a lot of people have been there for so long. And, and I think people being valued for their time, I think, you know, people talk about, about feeling valued and, and, and feeling valuable. I think it's about time. Did I spend my time doing something that meant something to somebody, that made a difference to somebody, that counted you know, and I think that's why people get so uh, excited and so keen on doing things like voluntary work, like people going on beaches and cleaning up plastic, because afterwards you can look at the beach and you can say, I, I made a diff. I know I did something. You know, you can look at this bag of plastic you've picked up and you go, I did something that made a difference. And yeah, you know, by tomorrow, it's going to be right back the way it was again. But today I made a difference. And if we, you know, and if we, if we think in that way, we all, you know, we all, make a huge difference together we don't even have to be working together directly to do that but it, you know it adds up it's, there's so many different things to pick up on here I mean we you've been talking about values most recently and I agree you know value when you value your values you then are valued for your work essentially so it's, it's about being aware of of your own sort of abilities and also your needs and your values so competencies and skills and filters and values and beliefs and perceptions aside ultimately it comes down to the the sort of time old quote of time and tide wait for no man you know time is of the essence and how you spend your time is of the most importance and you talk about the people who think that they've got time by setting aside that later in life and yet it doesn't come. So what is your sort of biggest ad, sort of advocate or, or advice on this area? Looking back, the thing I always 
the only thing I ever wished for more of from my father, particularly, was time. It's the only thing I ever wanted more of. Didn't want any more money or stuff or whatever. And I think particularly parents often get into a trap of working so hard to give their kids a better life, not realising it's them that gives their kids a better life, not the stuff and the money and the education. It's, it's, it's you and what you've spent a lifetime absorbing through your senses from the world, what you've spent a lifetime learning. It's your ability to, to share that and pass that on. You know, you try and save your, your children from from uh, difficult lessons, you know, from making mistakes. You can't because everybody's got to make their own mistakes. You know, it doesn't matter what you prepare people for, whether it's people you're training or your clients you're coaching or your kids that you're bringing up. It doesn't matter what you prepare people for. They will always find new and creative ways to screw their lives up. But they will, you know, they will get out, get themselves out of that with with your support and, you know, whether that's as a friend or a parent or, or a coach or, or whatever it is, you know, we can't stop people getting themselves into scrapes, but we can offer them a hand to, to pull themselves out of it, certainly. And I think in terms of the, um, you know, how, how to, 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 to devote that time, how to spend your time. And, you know, people, people often say, well, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, you know, like I didn't know what to do. So I just did what I liked, what I enjoyed, I, you know, at the time and, and this is the advice i always give people and i've talked to business schools and, and my old school just a couple of weeks ago and, and talked about this but i think the most important thing is um is to do what you enjoy doing and that's for a very simple reason i think as i said earlier people come out of school thinking you know i've got to get a career that pays well i've got to be a you know an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or a you know a, a programmer in some obscure language that I can charge people a huge day rate for or whatever. But what happens is you, the job is never what you think it is. You know, uh, how much of a, how much time does a teacher spend teaching a couple of hours a day, the rest they spend doing timetables and meetings and, you know, talking to parents and safeguarding and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So the job title isn't, you know, we were talking about uh, labels earlier the, the label is misleading because that's only a tiny, tiny fraction of what that job actually entails. So people think, you know, oh, well, I'm going to be an accountant because I'll learn loads of money. Well, you don't actually spend an awful lot of time being an accountant. You spend a lot of the time doing all the other stuff you have to do in order to be able to do that thing. Same with athletes and sports players. You know, I spend minutes on the on the pitch and, and hours and days and weeks training to be on that pitch. Um, because that's not the point where they, where they do the job. That's the point where they get measured for doing the job. You know, a lawyer spends most of their time not doing law work or not being in court or whatever it is. But they, but that's the bit they pay. They get paid for. So you know, that's the bit they get measured on. So that seems to be the important bit. So the advice is is this: it's do what you enjoy, because if you enjoy it, you will naturally want to do more of it. And if you do more of something, you will naturally get better at it because you're doing it more often. And if you get better at it, people will pay you more to do it. So start with what you enjoy doing. And I think often at stages in people's careers, they say, oh, but I don't know what I enjoy. Well, in that case, put yourself in a position where you can do as many different things as possible 
and see which one you like doing. I mean, it's so obvious, but so underrated as a way of finding your kind of direction. And, and I suppose the theme of the podcast, finding your purpose in life. Do what you like doing. But how will I know what I like? Do, do it and see if you like it. It's not complicated. And people take all these profiles and, you know, have career coaching. Oh, I need to find out. What, and I've got to find out what, I, what I'm supposed to be doing. And what's my purpose? Nobody knows. Do, do stuff. See if you take a basket weaving course. Did you like it? Yeah, it's all right. Okay, well, don't, don't carry on doing that then. Take a writing, creative writing course. Did you like that? Oh, I loved it. Then carry on doing that. Do what, you know, do what you like. You'll want to spend more time doing it. And if you're if you, uh, lucky like me and are able to create a, a life and a business where, aside from tax returns, I can pretty much do everything because I like doing it, it means no day feels like work. I mean, there's, you know, of course, there is that distinction, you know, going for a walk in the countryside isn't work. But while I'm going for a countryside and, uh, you know, walking the countryside, I'm coming up with ideas and thinking of stuff that is work related or talking to my wife about stuff that is work related. So, but it feels like it makes a difference. You know, if working from, for the, I think that was the thing talk, talking about the, um, you know, the, the, the company that the, the last employer I had was there was nothing to talk about at the end of the day other than how, how bad things were. That's depressing. You know, when it when your job comes into your home life because you've got to let off steam, because you've got to gripe about how they've treated you today. That's that's not that's not good. But when you come home from work and say, oh, I did this today, and, and you know, you whoever you live with said, Oh wow, that's great. Then it's uplifting, it's valuing to have a conversation about stuff that makes you feel good about yourself to tell stories about problems you've solved or ideas you came up with that had that resulted in somebody else saying to you that's a good idea or wow you did a great job with that that's you know and to be able to bring that home and talk about that you know in, in the evenings or the weekends it amplifies that it's so so i think examine your working life and examine what you do at the boundaries of that if the 5 minutes before you start work you're dreading it and delaying it and putting it off and the fight you know in the evening after you finish work your conversation at home is just all the things that have gone wrong and all the things you've hated that day you change direction and nobody's stopping you change direction anytime you want you know people the question i get asked the most is how did i switch from working in the telecoms industry to doing what i do now and there's two answers. There's a long, complicated answer, which is, oh, it's not that different. And it's about systems and people and understanding complexity. Oh, yeah, people understand that. People understand the answer and they like it because it's comforting, because because it makes it sound like, you know, it's a bit difficult. And, and, it, and it allows them to carry on telling their story about how what they're doing right now isn't what they really want to be doing. But that's not the truth. The truth was I just woke up one day and decided to do it. And there was never anything stopping me. Um, and so if you're listening to this and thinking about making a, a change in, in direction in life and you're coming up with excuses and reasons and things you've got to wait for, they're all lies. The truth is you can wake up one morning and decide to do it and nobody will ever ask to see your certificate or your you know, ID or anything. You say to somebody, I'm a whatever, and they will say, oh, okay, that's interesting. Or they'll say, oh. I don't know what that is or whatever, but nobody will ever say, I don't believe you. You can change direction anytime you want. 
you just have to decide to do it. And having decided to do it, you got to, you've then got to figure out how to live with it. But you know, never forget how much support you've got around you, even though you might not think think that. Never forget how how many people are there with their hands out, ready to pull you up when you need it. Well, that seems like a, a great place to sort of wrap up today, Peter. And I just want to say thank you so much. I think I, I really enjoyed the the sort of the gradual sort of journey that you've taken us on today. And it is understanding that, you know, where people feel that they're being pigeonholed and niched right in their teens through to this sort of very sort of prescriptive life, actually to understand that it's not like that, that that doesn't have to be how the world works and that you have this, the choice of to change your direction, to change opportunities, to, to take it where you want, but really focus on what you enjoy, which is what you, the message you were sort of sharing there. So it's fantastic that you don't have to be trapped with fear and failings and that you have opportunities within your life so a fantastic conversation thank you how would people get in contact with you peter you can uh, visit my website which is genius.coach um that really is a website there's nothing missing from it genius.coach uh, and on the contact page there you'll find links to all my social media profiles i don't think there's many people around with the name peter freeth uh, so if you just look me up on on linkedin as well you'll find that uh, that would be the uh, the simplest way Fantastic. And I'm just going to share a story. Everybody on Zoom have tends to have the bookcases behind behind you. And it was in our first conversation that you spotted a book on one of my top shelves and said, can you just have a look at that book? And I pulled it off my shelf and lo and behold, it was your book. So it's, it is, it's impressive. It was really, I was actually a little bit sort of starstruck that I'd had this book and I hadn't connected with the two. So you, you mentioned earlier in your podcast that you could be unaware of the impact you have on the world. Well, the impact you had on my world was that you took me into the world of NLP. And here we are now having a conversation sort of two years down the line. It's, it's just it's bizarre how the world sort of manifests and things happen like that. But, yeah, it was it was great that you spotted something on my bookshelf that was your book. So well, thank you for that. <laughs> No, no, thank you. It was, it was very exciting to see that. And I always love to, to to look at people's bookshelves and stuff that they put in the backgrounds because we've got to remember that, you know, that's the environment you've created for yourself. So nothing is there by accident. Everything that's behind you right now is is telling a story that you want to share with the world. Yeah. And there's a whole load of other stuff in your house which isn't behind you, like the vacuum cleaner and so on, because that's not a story you want to tell the world. So we all curate the story that we tell. And I think there's another message there about the fingerprints and the, you know, the, 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 the trail that we leave in the world behind us that we, that we don't notice. You know, I, I wrote a book and then some years later you read it. But for both of us, that's a real time conversation. I'm writing it as I'm talking to you in my now and you're reading it as if you're talking to me in your now. And that book connects us through space and time and more than books, everything that we do that leaves a physical imprint on the world connects people together you know you go for a walk and you see a pile of stones somebody put those stones there and and has through space and time communicated something with you and you know i think i think if we're more aware of how we're doing that with each other how we're connecting with each other and communicating with each other i think i think it's we can feel a lot more I don't know, a, a stronger connection with the value that we that we bring to the world because we can see ways that it does affect other people, people that we might never meet and might never even know about, but it still 
touches their lives and, and ultimately that's what we all want to do we all want to be significant and valued and, and more than anything else i think we all want to be remembered thank you for listening to the focus on why podcast i'm amy rowlandson and if you've enjoyed this episode please leave me a five-star apple podcast review connect with me on linkedin instagram and facebook and become a member of my inspiring uplifting and positive focus on why facebook group I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.